Hi, I'm Melissa Boyles. Welcome to Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. In this episode, I got to talk to Greg Byers. Greg is the director of the Multimodal Planning Division for the Arizona Department of Transportation. And I would argue there is probably no more significant group of people when it comes to planning and impacting the overall future of transportation for the state of Arizona than Greg and his team. He was gracious enough to take the time to explain to me exactly what his role is and all of the many facets of transportation from public to aeronautics that are encompassed and managed within his division. I am so looking forward to sharing the wealth of information that he has provided to us. And so without further ado, let's talk to Greg. Welcome, Greg. Thank you so much for joining me on Moving Arizona. Yes, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. For those in the audience or our listeners that don't know who you are and what you do, do you want to explain a little bit about your role with the Arizona Department of Transportation? Sure. So I am the director of the Multimodal Planning Division. Our division has a multitude of different things that we do. In multimodal planning, we have transit, we have aeronautics, we have, of course, planning, we have programming, we have our GIS group, we have our traffic management group, we have our traffic modeling group, we also have our data management group, we have our pavement management group, and we have what we call our corridor planning group. We also have a research group, so we're pretty diverse. We have a lot of stuff going on on a constant basis. You know, folks don't really think of ADOT as having a role to play with transit or with aeronautics. Can you talk a little bit about what you do in those areas? Sure. So the state of Arizona receives funds from FDA and with the idea that it is dispersed across the state. So our transit group takes and does just that. So we take the FTA funds and we distribute those funds as well as manage the funds across the state. So we have several different, I'm going to say, priorities that we have to follow as far as how those funds are utilized. And so they're all dispersed through a grant process. And we administer those grants and make sure that the different entities that are using them or what we call subrecipients are using them correctly. And then we, we do the oversight for FTA. The aeronautics group, the state actually has what's called a state aviation fund, which is supported through taxes on aviation fuel, on plane registrations and so forth. We utilize those funds to take and support 67 different airports across the state of Arizona. So what we do with that is a lot of those airports get federal funds from FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, but those come with a match. And so what we do is we pay half the match for all of the state airports on any FAA grant. We also give out grants for construction and different capital improvements on those airports as well. That's mostly what we do there. 
67 airports? There's 67 qualified airports across the state of Arizona that we support. Wow. I was thinking that the aeronautics activity would be limited to the Grand Canyon Airport. No, actually, we do very little with Grand Canyon Airport because Grand Canyon Airport actually is operated under facilities, not under our aeronautics division. We do support them with some funds, though. So you're the grant recipient for FAA, and then you distribute those funds to them as well? Actually, we get absolutely no funding from FAA. The only funds that we distribute are the funds out of the state aviation fund. Okay. Uh, So we use those to supplement the FAA funding that comes into individual airports. But the state itself does not get any FAA funds, or at least we don't through the aeronautics group. Grand Canyon Airport does get FAA funding because they are an independent airport. So they they qualify for those funds. So that's different than on the transit side of things where the state is a direct recipient of the FTA funds and then distributes it to the sub-recipients. That's exactly correct. And on the transit side, ADOT also, though, has like hundreds of sub-recipients across the state. Isn't that so? Yes, we do. We, We have... I wish I could tell you the exact number, but it is right around a hundred when you when you kind of throw everything together. Not all of the transit authorities across the state qualify for the funds that we distribute because if it's a, a larger one such as City of Phoenix or City of Tucson with their rail systems and their transit systems, they're large enough that they get funding directly through FTA. It's the smaller entities that we represent and distribute funding to. And you work very closely with the Arizona Transit Association and you partner to do training and make sure people have access to the requirements and what have you? We do. We actually work very closely with them. One of the big things that they help us out with more than anything else is getting information out to the smaller sub-recipients so that they know that there's funding available to them and what the qualifications are to be able to get those funds. So they're an extremely important partner with us in helping to get that word out. I'm a big fan of ASTA. (laughs) (laughs) Becky Miller and Cindy Lozano, they're pretty awesome, pretty dedicated people and making sure that, you know, everyone from people that are providing maybe a a small shuttle service to even like dial a right service, right? They're being provided with some funds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's it's amazing what the funds go to and the different supports. And it's not all public either. There's there's several private entities that we support as well, but they're providing a public service. So uh, therefore, they qualify for those funds. It's amazing the reach that ADOT has because, you know, you think about our interstates and our freeway systems and all the expansion and improvement, you know, keeping our freeways safe and maintained and, you know, accommodating the growth of the valley and the state. But really, it outreaches some very, very small communities and helps to kind of connect the dots between the needs of transportation and the resources that are available. That's absolutely correct. And you know, in the case of transit, you know, we we have uh, elderly transit, we have disabled transit services that, that we help to fund. And I mean, it's even uh, Meals on Wheels 
kind of stuff that, that we do as well. So it's a huge reach, but it really does hit the, the needs that the communities have. It must make you feel good to be a part of that. It does. You know what? It, it's nice to be able to know that you're doing stuff. And, and one of the biggest, for me, pleasures that I have in the position I'm in is at the transit conventions that we have every year. Being able to get up and speak to them and being honored in them to allow me to do it. And it's neat. And, and it's amazing how many people show up to those. It really, really is. There are hundreds of people. There are like three, 400 people, I think, that come to the Azta ADOT conference usually. Yeah. Yeah, there are. It's, it's very rewarding, though. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys also have a heavy hand in the environmental aspects of what happens in the state. Isn't that true? Well, our corridor planning group does a lot of our major studies. Like right now, we're working on the I-11 Tier 1. We're working on the North-South Corridor Tier 1. We're working on the Sonoran Corridor Tier 1. We just finished up the DCR and environmental for the I-10 widening in Tucson. So we've got a lot on our plate that we're doing and actually getting ready to wrap up. So, yeah, I mean, we do a lot of that kind of work, and that's exactly what the corridor planning group does. And that north-south corridor, wasn't that recently prioritized and given some additional funding? Well, there's a part of a bill that's currently in the legislature for funding for what's called the Tier 2, which is the next phase in the north-south corridor. And for anybody that doesn't know, the north-south corridor is in the the East Valley, and it connects I-10 to US-60. So a pretty critical corridor, given the growth that we're seeing there. Exactly. So that must be a little bit tricky. You guys go through your project development process and plan your program. And then the state legislature decides that they're wanting to invest in progressing something maybe a little bit differently than we had planned. How do you how do you navigate around that? And do you end up jockeying around some of the projects if we end up with additional funds? So we do. And we've been working very, very hard. Dallas Hammett has been working with the legislature along with our government relations folks in a feverish manner over the last couple months, as well as several of our group in MPD to make sure that they understand what ADOT's priorities are so that we can align what their needs are with what our priorities are so that what we really need to get funded can get funded through the state legislature if there's funding to be had. And so that's that's one of the big alignments that we've been really working hard on because when we're not aligned, it starts subtracting from what we really need as prioritization. So it's always a moving target and we're always trying to get to the center, but sometimes it falls off one way or the other. But, you know, any funding coming in for transportation is good. Don't get me wrong. But it's nice when it really hits our priorities as well. It's exciting to think that they have the, I don't know, was it a commission or a committee that's going to be looking at potential dedicated funding from the state? They're supposed to be wrapping that up, I want to say, by the end of this year. Are you talking about the legislative committee? Yes. But yes. So the transportation committees, I think, that we deal with in both the House and Senate are the, the ones that we deal with to start off with. They're the ones that are always asking for information to start. And they allow us to guide them to some point in the priorities that we have. 
And then, of course, each of the different legislatures is going to have their pet project that they want to see come forward. So if we can start forming a consensus on the priorities, that's huge. One of the big things that we've had over the last couple of years is we've had very good alignment on the I-17 project to be able to get funds for it. And without the funds that have come through the state legislature, we wouldn't have been able to get the federal grant that we did the Infra grant to actually push the project over the top. And the same is occurring right now on the I-10 corridor. You know, that's a very high priority for ADOT. It's the number one priority that we have, but it's also a number one priority for the governor and, and I think a lot of the state legislators. So with that alignment, that really helps us out in trying to get any kind of funding going towards that corridor. And the I-17 corridor that you're mentioning is the Flex Lanes project? It's the I-17 project that I'm talking about is Anthem Way to Cordis Junction. It's going to have flex lanes in it. It's basically widening it out so that we'll have additional lanes coming through the most, I'm going to say, treacherous portions of I-17 so that we've got some additional capacity in there. So that if we have wrecks or issues uh, along that corridor, we have additional capacity to keep traffic moving. We'll actually have the ability to swap northbound traffic onto southbound lanes and vice versa, we'll be able to, to do the opposite. So they're, they're called flex lanes is what we're calling them. That's going to be a first for Arizona, isn't it? It is a first. It's, it's a concept that's used quite a bit in large corridors within urbanized areas. So you'll where you have big commuter traffic going in one direction in the morning and an opposite direction in the afternoon. And so they use flex lanes for that quite often. This is a little different where this this is more for weekend travel, where we have a huge influx of vehicles. And so we just don't have the capacity to handle it. But at the same point in time, it doesn't justify putting multiple lanes out where they're not being utilized 90% of the time. It's that weekend traffic getting out of the valley up to northern Arizona, Prescott, Sedona, Flagstaff. And I've been in that traffic. If there's an accident or something, you're just parked. You kind of may as well turn your car off and, you know, you can sit and having that extra capacity without making it like a permanent expansion, if you will. So we're not eating up more of the desert. We're kind of limiting what we're doing on that front, but we're still adding room to get people around if there's an issue. I'm excited to see us get innovative. I know we push the envelope on a lot of things as far as exploring options. I think that's going to be another great success. It will be. And it was the key to us getting the federal infogrant. It was the innovative measures that we had in in the grant. Uh, so the big thing is, is, you know, on holiday weekends, particularly, you know, people trying to get out of town, they kind of stretch it out. Some leave Fridays, some leave Thursday, some leave Saturday. So it's not too bad, but everybody's trying to come back on a Sunday or a Monday. And that's where we have the issues. And, you know, God forbid we have an accident on the way back. You know, we can have 15, 20 mile backups, people sitting for hours. And so that's not what we want. And so that's the issue or that's the problem that we're trying to solve here. And that's sort of the approach that you take in general with the planning process, isn't it? Looking at where our corridors are, looking at where our growth patterns are and and trying to figure out what's within our ability to solve or improve. It is to a point we have on the planning side, we have two major partners uh, and I'm going to call them partners. We have in Maricopa County, we have MAG, which is Maricopa Association of Governments. 
And they are actually responsible for planning and programming of projects within Maricopa County. The same is true in Pima County, where we have PAG, which is the Pima Association of Governments. They do the same thing. They plan and program their own. Now, they also have their own funding sources because they have a tax that helps support uh, transportation within each of those counties. So they actually generate a lot of money for projects within those two counties. So we work with them and basically they do the planning, the programming. We actually construct and maintain those projects, but it's a, it's a coordinated effort all the way through from initiating the project to getting them completed and then, of course, maintaining them. In the greater Arizona area, outside of those two counties, it's a little different story because we have very limited funds. So one of the things that we've done, we have a long range transportation plan that we developed back in 2017. And one of the goals in that plan was to work our way to zero expansion with money being spent only for preservation. And what we've seen is over the past 10 years, our roadways, we categorize our roadways into good, fair and poor conditions. And we've seen a substantial decline in good condition pavements going down to fair and into the poor condition. So the long range transportation plan developed a means of taking and prioritizing all of our preservation dollars, all basically almost all of the dollars we have into preservation, and then also what we call modernization, which are safety improvements but taking and zeroing out expansion projects that would actually take and add capacity to roadways. So it's a different means, but it's really taking care of what we already have rather than allowing it to start to decay even further while we're trying to build bigger and better projects that we have to maintain for the long run with lesser and lesser funds. So starting that emphasis on working towards zero expansion back in 2017, we're now four years later and we develop interim five-year plans or, or shorter term plans based on what criteria? So our five-year program utilizes the recommendations out of our long-range transportation plan. So that's kind of the basis from which we work so we've been working towards a, a zero expansion in greater Arizona, but at the same point in time, we have huge needs and we had some projects that were already in the, the line for development. So we've had to kind of balance that out somewhat, make sure that we do those projects that are of the highest priority, such as I-17, such as I-10, which I-10 we we're doing the planning on, but don't really have a lot of funds for that yet. But we still have to be able to do that. That's major commerce. That's economics that we have to take into consideration. So there's other projects that, you know, if you're a small community and, and you have one route coming in, that route is extremely important to that community. And so they're biased towards that one project and for good reason. And so we get a lot of demands, but we have to take and balance that out systematically because we have to look at the whole system. We can't just look at one row. And therefore, prioritizations on a statewide basis is number one in how we put together our five-year program. So how does that process work? And has our circumstance, I know last year with regard to COVID, you know, we reacted pretty swiftly to kind of not halt the process, but sort of pause the process and make sure that our revenue 
impacts, potential impacts were accounted for and that we weren't planning for and and passing things that we weren't going to actually be able to pay for. Has that impacted this year's process as well? I mean, I know it feels like it's been months and, and they finally have said that, you know, we can start to get life back to normal, but it's really only been weeks. Yeah. So last year's program, in a normal year, we start our public comments for our five-year program. We start them in February and we have hold public hearings and we take it all the way through June and the state transportation board approves it in June. And that starts the process. That's the normal process. And last year, because of COVID and the unknown means of funding and so forth, we started the process out in the normal manner. But Come February, actually come March, we did just that. We put a, put a hold on it until we knew what was going to happen with our programming. The five-year program that we had that, that was in place, it's, again, it's a five-year program. So it just kept running through. It didn't make any difference whether or not we had approved anything. It just kept running through. So we had a plan that was already established and we just maintained it. We didn't get a new five-year program approved until October of last year. So we went all the way through October without a new five-year program, and then we got it approved. So by that time, we had much better handle on finances. The FMS had done their projections, and we were able to take and develop a five-year program. I don't ever want to have to go through that again. It was a nightmare, but we did it. And in so doing, it was kind of funny because in so doing, we developed a lot of tools to be able to start manipulating projects, to prioritize projects that were in the program. And this year when we did it, we had those tools at our disposal that were great to use. And it made life much easier this year because we were forced to develop those tools last year. And now we had them and it worked out great. What types of tools? We actually came up with, it's nothing more than basically a huge spreadsheet. But what it did is it allowed us to take every single project that was in the program, as well as new projects, using our P2P process, which is planning the programming, which prioritizes the projects, allowing us to use that process to take and develop and move projects around so that we could maintain our physical constraint for the funding, but yet the projects lined out within the years that we had of the five-year program so that it, we could maintain that, that physical constraint and get the projects done, get them out. And so it worked out really slick. One of the, one of the uh, I have to tell you this because it was kind of funny. We, we say good and bad things about the use of Google because now we use Google, not exclusively, but we use Google quite a bit. We developed the spreadsheet in Google And I remember one particular time where I had my program group manager, myself, and Dallas Hammett all in the same worksheet, all at the same time. We're talking together on the phone back and forth as we're manipulating cells through that whole thing. We did basically a week and a half's worth of work in about three hours. And uh, just because we could do that. So it it was a huge thing. And so... In developing that tool again, now we have that to use every year, which is huge. That's incredible. So you're working in a virtual environment where the three of you are hands-on manipulating data, but because it's saving real time, you don't have to worry about version control and did someone catch their updates and... 
Exactly. And, and well, you know, we didn't have the, well, let me do this and then I'll send it to you. Okay. And then you, if it's good, then send it back. And none of that. We did it all in, in about a three hour period. We, we did all of that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So as you were looking at the current update, because I was just reading online that you've received, I think the article said over 700 comments on the plan so far or what or the or the tentative five-year plan what were your priorities and what was that process to engage the public because well, we were still operating under a lot of constraints so communications has done a tremendous job in making sure that we're getting the information out to people to give you an idea last year now last year wasn't a typical year but we had 77 comments on the entire public outreach that we had so this morning, we had a study session with the State Transportation Board, where I went through a lot of the categorized comments that we had, which exceeded over a thousand comments we received on this five-year program. So, so it's a huge difference. So obviously, communications has done a great job in making sure that, that the information is getting out. We have everything on our website. They use Facebook. They use Twitter. They use a multitude of different means of trying to get the information out. So they did a great job in doing that. And a lot of the comments that we got, we were able to either already have addressed or were able to start being able to address in the five-year program. Some of them we can't because there's, you know, we're, we're working on a finite amount of funding. And so there's some things that we can't do. There was some comments about trying to get I-11 built. Well, you know, that's a $30 billion project. I don't carry that kind of cash in my pocket. So it's kind of hard to, <laughs> to do anything. So, yeah. so there's some things we can't do, but a lot of them aligned, a lot of the comments aligned with what we were already looking at. So that was, that was good to see. Can you give some examples of, of what, those comments were and, and how they aligned? So we had several comments on the widening of I-10 between Phoenix and Casa Grande. We're already looking at that, already trying to do everything we can. We do have the Gila River Bridge on I-10 in the program. So it was in the tentative program. So it's it looks like it's going to go into the five-year program. A lot of them were on I-17, which again, we, we already have that project up and going. So it's getting ready to actually start construction. We had items on US 93, trying to get that expanded and, and up and going. And we have a couple of projects out there. One of them is right outside of Wickenburg. We have another project that is the US 93 and I-40 TI in Kingman. So we've got a lot of those projects that are up and going that people were asking for. Now, there's other ones that are, you know, I, I've spoken about the small communities with a single route coming into them. There was a lot of those kind of comments that we had as well where some of them we can take an address, but other ones that, you know, when we're looking at, at the statewide prioritization, some of those are very hard to get to. So we go as far down the list as we possibly can with our priorities with the funding amounts that we have. To give you an idea of the need and, and what we can do, on any given year, we get between 800 and 1800 requests for projects that go through our P2P process. This year, we're able to put four projects into our program. So that gives you an idea of where we're at with what the need is that's out there and what we can fund. I recall Steve Boshan at one of the 
believe it was Steve Ocean. It was either Steve or Dallas, but at one of the ACEC meetings talking about putting a priority on our bridge maintenance efforts. Is that something that was looked at as well? Yes, it is. In fact, it's it's been a high priority for several years. And we've actually seen last year, we actually had a reverse in the percentages of bridges that have gone in the good, fair, and poor categories. We've seen this massive decline in good. Last year, we actually saw a slight reverse in that. So that was a, a really big thing. But that's a lot of investment went into to trying to get that done. So preservation for us is both bridge and pavement. So it's not just one or the other. We do both of them, not equal parts. There's way more pavement than we have bridges, but we try and equalize those out as much as we possibly can. Will our plan, our tentative five-year plan be impacted by what happens in Washington? It could. At this point in time, it can also be impacted by the final budget that comes out of the state legislature as well. So depending on where that lands when it's said and done, if there's infrastructure dollars in there that are going to go towards transportation, we'll adjust our program to that. Same with anything that comes out of federal government. If we have reauthorization that comes through out of DOT, then we'll take and adjust ours as we see fit if, if it addresses funding. Now, we may wind up with some demands and no funding, so there's that, that could be a, a, a negative impact. But until that's fully developed, you know, it's, it's a guessing game. So we just go with what we need for now. So our normal process, we're in June now. What would our normal process be as far as getting the plan approved and adopted and moving forward? And then do we have a contingency planning effort or approach in case there is funding that comes from the state legislature, governor's office, or the federal government? We normally have a budget mid-June, somewhere in that time frame, so that we could adjust the program that's approved by the state transportation board at the end of June and then goes into effect the 1st of July. As far as contingency goes, it's not so much a contingency, but a process that we've developed through the years. We have a means in which we can take new projects or revisions to projects, take it through our PRB board, which is planning review board, take it through our PPAC process, which is the priority planning action committee process, and then we take it through the state transportation board. So there's a vetting process that goes all the way through the ADOT side before it gets to the state transportation board. So if there was suddenly, you know, $200 million for the funding showed up and we had projects already lined up, which we do, we have priorities already set aside, we could take and almost immediately take and start rolling projects through that process to amend our state transportation plan. So does that process then result in us maybe delivering some projects faster or is it adding additional projects or is it a combination of those things? It can be a combination. There may be projects that in the delivery process, we find out that there's circumstances in which that project might not be able to be delivered in a single fiscal year that it was set in. So we need to move that project back. If that's the case, then there may be other projects that we could move forward to take its place or bring other projects through that would take that place. 
so that we can, no matter what, we always maintain that fiscal constraint within that current year. So that's an ever-changing process with us because there's always contingencies in every single project. That's a means in which we can, one, we can account for it and keep everything as transparent as we possibly can, but also make the modifications that we need and get them approved through the state transportation board. So everybody knows what's going on. We keep it as transparent as possible, but keep it flowing as fast as possible at the same time. It seems that our state transportation board is pretty well educated, if you will, about our transportation priorities and the challenges balancing urban with rural and or greater with the metro areas, greater Arizona with the metro areas. Have you found that it's been easy to work with them as far as adopting plans and moving things forward? Well, one of the one of the greatest things I think that we have in the state transportation board is the fact that we have board members that are on for basically six year terms. So we have some very experienced board members that really help out the lesser experienced board members. And then every single board meeting we have, we try and push through the education necessary for them to understand what it is that we're doing, why we're doing it, and so forth. So that there's, you know, along the way, they, they learn all the processes, they learn what's going on, they, they become extremely familiar with our system, whether it's the physical roadway system itself or the system of administering ADOT in itself. So because of the differing experience on the board, I think it's great because the inexperienced or the, or the lesser experienced board members they're new eyes to come and see what we're doing. And they have a vision that keeps us from getting stuck somewhere. And so that's great. I mean, to me, that really keeps us on our toes. And at the same point in time, the more experienced board members know how the system works so they can help expedite the system and keep it going so that it doesn't get bogged down in the minutia of something new. So it's a really good balance. And I think we have a really good working relationship with the board. It seems the state transportation board meetings having shifted to a virtual platform, that seems like it's been a really positive move in that from what I understand, there's so much more attendance and so much more awareness about what happens at the state transportation board and the impacts. Have you seen that to be true? Before COVID hit, and at any given board meeting, and, and the board meetings travel across the state, so they're, they're not in one place. They, they move. Uh, every single board meeting is at a different location, and so which is great. It allows everybody to go see the state, drive the roadways so that you see what's there, talk to the local people so that they, you know what their concerns are. So it works out great for that because it really allows the board members to, to work very well with their contingency. But at each of those meetings, well, we, we would probably get... 10 or 12 people to attend the board meetings. Not, you know, if it was in uh, in the Phoenix region, we would get more. If it was in the Tucson region, we'd get more. But when we get into the more isolated areas, it would be fewer. Since we went virtual, I think it was on the second virtual, second or third virtual meeting that we had, I was looking at the attendance list. We do everything on WebEx. And so you can see how many people are, are on. And we, we were up at like 290 people attending that particular meeting. So 
that was extremely interesting to see. Wow, you know, there's a lot of people that are really interested in this. So, so it, it's kind of dwindled off a little bit. I think it cost, lost its nuance to some extent, but but we still. I mean, even at a study session today, I think we we had sixty or seventy people attending virtually, whereas normally we might have you know maybe fifteen or twenty. That's a big difference. That may have had an impact on to why there's so many people that are commenting on our tentative five-year plan. That's right. And getting the public input in does a couple things for us. One is it allows us to see, again, identify the needs that we have across the state. But it also takes and verifies a lot of the needs that we see and seeing that you know people across the state are seeing the same needs. It's reassuring to us that, hey, you know what, we're going down the right road. For, for me, it's that verification is huge because it does keep us on track on exactly where we need to go. You know, we had one particular project that drew a, a substantial number of comments in this five-year program, and it was a very small project per se. I mean, when you're looking at some of the other projects, but it drew a, a huge number of comments. So it's something that we can work on. I think we kind of knew about it in the past, never, but it didn't rise to the level of the comments that we received. So consequently, we had to put resources on that because, hey, you know, what's going on that we're receiving this many comments? So it's an effective means of, of people bringing forward an issue. So it was great in, in that effect. And it actually gives you an opportunity to substantiate reprioritizing something. It does, because that may have been a project that was not, didn't even come close to being the top of our priority list, but it obviously has a huge effect on that area. And it's, it's substantial. When we start getting that many comments coming in, that can't be ignored. It has to be addressed. So it starts rising up through the priorities. I think it's interesting in Arizona, we have, so we have these couple of concentrated areas, the urban areas of, you know, the Metro Phoenix area, Metro Tucson area, but the vast majority of the state is made up of much smaller communities. And we have the ability to really affect the quality of life of people that are in these rural communities. Whereas in the larger metro areas, the cities and the, you know, whether it's Phoenix and then the surrounding cities, they're working together to address issues collaboratively. But some of our rural communities are really left depending on ADOT to answer some of their transportation challenges. You're absolutely right. And we have an issue in rural Arizona in that we, ha- we have huge swaths of areas within the state that are tribal. And so consequently, we have a lot of roadways within those. But those areas have a lot of roadways that either belong to the Bureau of Indian Affairs or their tribal roadways themselves. And so there's a limited amount that ADOT can do within those areas because we're limited to only either providing maintenance or improvements to roadways that are on the state's highway system. And so we cannot take and spend state dollars on a BIA road or on a tribal road. So our hands are tied in a lot of cases, which is it's kind of heartbreaking in some cases because it's you see the need that's out there, but there's that's something that we can't address. We just legally we're not allowed to. Do we work with the tribal communities? 
One of the other things that we have in MPD, we have two tribal liaisons that work within ADOT that take and travel across the state working with all of our tribal partners. And they are of a huge help to us in working on tribal matters. And so they don't only work within MPD, they work across all of ADOT, all across the state. It's not just MPD, and they're helping out in all means that you can possibly think of across the state. We have one that takes care of the southern part of the state, one that takes care of the northern part of the state, because again, the tribal lands stretch all across the state of Arizona. I'm amazed at everything that you guys do. I think I was familiar with the transit component and aeronautics fell within MPD, but I didn't realize to what extent. And it's just, it's a little bit mind boggling all that you guys, like, do you have a staff of thousands or? (laughs) Actually, the the, the funny part of it is MPD is the very, is the smallest division within transportation. We have a little less than a hundred people. But yet we do all of all these different things. So you manage to keep things moving on a day-to-day basis. You plan for five to 20 years, including contingency planning or planning that in a sense that you can respond if funding changes or priorities change. <laughs> so you're nimble, yet solid. And <laughs> I'll tell you what, I was blessed when I took this position because the people that work for MPD are great. It's amazing the abilities they have and the work ethic. To give you a good example, when COVID hit and we went remote, we went remote, about 90% of MPD instantly went remote one day. And through the following about three or four months, you know, we stumbled, we, we had our issues. But amazingly enough, we actually increased production by working remotely. I mean, we didn't miss a deadline. We got everything done. We opened up new programs that we started working on. It's just amazing what the people in MPD can do. And that's just kind of a tip of the the iceberg on what their capabilities are. What were the new programs? One of the biggest ones was last year when we developed the tools for programming. We did all that in COVID. And now it's a huge production saver for us that you wouldn't expect. I mean, it's just that kind of ingenuity that we have within the personnel of MPD. You know, we stepped into a whole new world when we went remote because people didn't know what was going on and and how to do it. And so we learned and became more and more proficient at it. And now we're extremely proficient at it. It was kind of funny because I did a survey about three months into going remote and I had 50% of the people that wanted to stay working remote and 50% of the people that wanted to come back to work the next day. I did another survey about nine months after we went remote. I had about 90% of the people that wanted to stay working remote. I only had 10% of the people that wanted to come back, but almost 100% of them wanted to come back at least one day a week, not to get work done. They were missing the camaraderie of working with their partners on a daily basis. They were missing it. So after I did that study, we actually started a program. Once every quarter, once every two or three months, we do the social hour. We actually pull people together and in smaller groups and we take an hour and we socialize, we play games, we do things just so I can maintain that continuity, that team effect working across the entire division. So you got aeronautics people working with transit people, working with planning people, and having fun. And, you know, it energizes people. 
even that one hour, it's amazing the energy that you can derive from doing that. It seems that we all very quickly were able to kind of adjust so that we weren't impacting our productivity, but you need to have a relationship with your coworkers, people that you're depending on. You, you kind of have to know them a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when you're used to that day-to-day contact, you know how, how everybody's doing. You, you, you have a little insight on and you lose that so quickly. And, you know, having the ability to set even that one hour makes a huge difference. And so now hopefully over the next coming months, we're starting to have a, a few more face-to-face meetings. We'll slowly start w- working it back. It's going to be an entirely different norm, yeah. but, uh, but we'll start working things back together. It is wonderful that we've been able to leverage technology and, and have conversations like we're having now. And you can participate and listen in on so many more things like this, you know, early this morning, I, w- I was listening to something in, in Washington, D.C. And then I listened in on a, a meeting in Seattle. And then today I'm, I'm talking to you, you know, this afternoon, I'm talking to you here and we're focusing on Arizona. And I would never have been able to participate in all three meetings, if not for a virtual environment. But I also didn't get to shake anybody's hand or, you know, <laughs> hug the people that I knew or, <laughs> you know, things of that nature. So it'll be nice to get a, a shift back to a hybrid because I don't think we'll ever go back 100 percent. No, I don't think we will either. And a lot of the different people that work within MPD or I have I have younger people, I have older people, you know. It's great to see that they're able to do it. I know sometimes that it's hard to balance. And that's one thing that I really do a lot of one-on-one coaching with a lot of my staff. And and I really try and push that one-on-one coaching that you have to balance your life. You have the ability to sit. And if you want to, you can sit and work 20 hours a day because it's right there in front of you. And you have to be able to walk away. And there's some people I have to tell them, hey, Stop it. You know, I don't need to get emails at three in the morning. So, so you need to be sleeping. But there's some people that it's kind of hard to let, to let go and you, they get involved. The next thing they know, it's midnight and they're still working. It's something I coach on a constant basis because I, that's one thing I don't want is for people to get burned out. And it's easy to do when it's that readily available. Yeah. Well, work-life balance, right? I think one of the things that came out of last year, I, I think for a lot of people is an awareness of what our real priorities are, that we have a lot of people in our community that are vulnerable, that we think about older relatives, our environments, you know, we need to take a minute and make sure that we're taking care of what's really important to us. Exactly. And it is. And that work-life balance to me is, is one of the most important things. You can't let one take over the other. So it's something that, you know, I, I make a concerted effort myself to, you know, if it's if I might put in 12 hours one day, but there's a time I say, okay, that's it. I'm done. Turn it off. And, and I walk away. And if you don't do that and you don't, you can't separate yourself. It's, it's not good. It's, it's not good for your life. It's not good for, for work because the burnout rate turns out to be really, really bad. Well, and our best ideas don't come from when we're grinding away and we're exhausted. It comes from when we're, you know, take a minute. Exactly. Reflection. That's yes. having the ability to reflect on something. Is it, That's where you get the innovation. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. And it's really very, I guess, enlightening that we would end on a note of work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's what your job is, right? You're balancing the 
present with the future and trying to factor in a bunch of unknowns and keep everybody sane in the process, both for yourself and your team and around the state. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we do. Thank you so much for doing this, Greg. I really honestly can't thank you enough. Oh, no problem. Well, thank you, Melissa. This has been fun. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. It was so awesome to talk to Greg and learn about all of the things that the Multimodal Planning Division of the Arizona Department of Transportation are responsible for. And it's a huge comfort to know that we're in such capable hands. I wish Greg and his team nothing but the best and look forward to watching how they adeptly navigate us through some opportunities related to new funding sources, new grant programs, and whatever might be on the horizon for us as a state. Next up, I'm talking to Patrick Banger. Patrick is the town manager for the town of Gilbert. And according to some of his big fans, of which there are many, he has been instrumental in shaping the town of Gilbert and has been tremendously innovative in how he has gone about incorporating active transportation, public transportation, and an investment in infrastructure that will serve his community for years to come. I hope you'll join me back to hear what Patrick has to share. And until then, let's get moving. <laughs>